Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Okay, we're back. We're into episode three of Reviving Virtue. I just want to bring this up up front here. I talked a little bit about revisiting the idea of the separation of church and state. When I was editing that episode, I debated about cutting it out, but I thought, for whatever reason, I said that off the cuff, and let's maybe think about why I would say that. And after thinking about it, I believe the impetus to say something as shocking as that is rooted in the desire of our secular society to intentionally create a space for a form of resonance, or you could call it tuning into a spirituality or even a religion. When I was making those comments in episode two, I was thinking of a concept called resonance, specifically by a German sociologist named Hartmut Rosa. One of his books called Resonance, a sociology of our relationship to the world, explores the concept of resonance as a crucial aspect of human interaction with the world around us. He posits that resonance is a deep and meaningful connection we feel when we engage in a responsive and mutually affecting relationship with another entity, be it a person, a place, an activity, or a cause. In Rosa's view, resonance is not just a pleasant feeling, but a vital human need. It is through resonance that we can truly relate to the world and find a sense of purpose and belonging. In the context of late modernity, Rosa suggests that we increasingly seek out these experiences of resonance as a counter to the alienation and acceleration we often encounter. Modern life, with its focus on efficiency, productivity, and constant technological advancement, can sometimes make us feel disconnected from our surroundings and from ourselves. This disconnection can lead to feelings of emptiness and insignificance. I think we can all relate to that. Resonance, according to Rosa, provides an antidote to these feelings. It allows us to experience the world as meaningful and responsive rather than as as a static object to be manipulated or controlled, instrumentally, I might add. It helps us to feel connected, engaged, and alive. This is why we seek out resonance to counter the disconnection of modern life and to experience a sense of deep, fulfilling engagement with the world around us. It is this sort of deeper relationship to the world and to each other I seek to provide the space for more exploration of. It is a practice, and with any practice, it needs to be practiced. And I think we should make this a part of our culture, in our education, make it a part of our vocabulary. This is what is I was getting at when I was said that we should rethink the idea of the separation of church and state. I'm not thinking of indoctrinating our children with religious texts but teaching children about the ideas of finding meaningful connections with each other, with their community, and with the world and the objects of the world. This can only be done through an intentional practice that offers an alternative to the instrumentalization of modern rationality and the focus on quantifiable, essentialized notions of the self. In the context of Dewey's book, where he's plumbing the relationship between the public and the state, and the relationships of individuals to communities on multiple scales, 
He's articulating the conflicts that rationalization and the focus on efficiency and quantification over qualitative aspects have on the health and functionality of our society. Dewey emphasizes that these conflicts can lead to a disconnection between individuals and their community, thereby eroding public engagement and the true essence of democracy. His work underscores the need for a shift away from solely quantitative metrics and towards an appreciation of qualitative experiences that account for the complex dynamic nature of individual identities and societal interactions. This shift, according to Dewey, is critical in fostering a more vibrant, participatory public and a more effective, responsive state. So I posit to my audience, is the laser focus on the separation of church and state as a project for the left primarily inhibiting us from looking at incorporating other modes of articulating and exploring practices of resonance with each other and the world and the universe? I think this is a really important question and is tied in with defining a new set of virtues for our time. Man, I got to do an episode on Hartman Rosa. I need to start bringing on some guests, liven this up a little bit. All right. So now we're going to move on to the prepared text for chapter three. This chapter is titled The Democratic State, and Dewey dives into the question of how the public determines a legitimate form of selecting official representatives and defining their responsibilities and rights, which constitutes a legitimate democratic state. Dewey brings in a slightly confusing concept, at least to me, in the opening of this chapter. He starts the first paragraph as, I quote, Singular persons are the foci of action, mental and moral, as well as overt. They are subject to all kinds of social influences which determine what they think of, plan, and choose. The conflicting streams of social influence come to a single and conclusive issue only in personal consciousness and deed. When a public is generated, the same law holds. It arrives at decisions, makes terms, and executes resolves only through the medium of individuals. They are officers, they represent a public, but the public acts only through them. Now, this concept of officers seems like Dewey is, use, is using it in a way that we do not use it today. This is what's confusing me. If I am reading this right, Dewey uses the term officers to refer to individuals who act on behalf of a public, representing its interest and making decisions for it. In this context, Officers include not only elected officials like legislators and executives, which is how we think of officers today, but also citizens who vote and participate in the political process. Each person, as a citizen voter, is an officer of the public in the sense that they are representing the public interest through their actions, whether it be voting, expressing their opinions, or making decisions. Now, this makes sense when you step back and conceptualize it like this. Like, yeah, okay. I'm an officer discharging my duty when I vote and participate in the political process. Okay, I get that. But I wonder, do you today consider yourself an official, as Dewey is saying, when you participate in the democratic process? I usually reserve that label for an actual official working in some professional capacity for the state. Dewey then brings in another slightly confusing concept he calls dual capacity. Here, let me quote Dewey again. In other words, Every officer of the public, whether he represents it as a voter or as a stated official, has a dual capacity. From this fact, the most serious problem of government arises. We commonly speak of some governments as representatives in contrast with others which are not. 
By our hypothesis, all government are representative in the way purported to stand for the interest which a public has in the behavior of individuals and groups. There is, however, no contradiction here. Those concerned in government are still human beings. They retain their share of the ordinary traits of human nature. They still have private interests to serve and interests of special groups, those of the family, clique, or class to which they belong. Rarely can a person sink himself in his political function. The best which most men attain to is the domination by the public wheel of their other desires. What is meant by representative government is that the public is definitely organized with the intent to secure this dominance. The dual capacity of every officer of the public leads to conflict in individuals between their genuinely political aims and acts and those which they possess in their non-political roles. When the public adopts special measures to see to it that the conflict is minimized and that the representative function overrides the private one, political institutions are termed representative. Okay, in this section, Dewey introduces the concept of dual capacity which refers to the fact that every individual involved in government, whether as a voter or an official, has both public and private interests. This dual nature leads to conflict between the genuine political aims and their personal desires. We all know that politicians don't have any desires. <laughs> so Dewey acknowledges that it's challenging for individuals to fully immerse themselves in their political roles. And the best most can achieve is to prioritize public interest over their own. Representative government in this context refers to a system where the public is organized with the intent to ensure that public interests dominate over private ones. The challenge lies in minimizing conflicts and ensuring that the representative function takes precedence over private interests. Now, this seems that's pretty important. Now, Dewey will explore how this conflict is managed in the rest of the chapter, but first, Dewey explores just who becomes leaders and why through history. According to Dewey, the selection of rulers and the equipment of them is a complete political accident. There has been no universal defined method. In fact, the decision of rulers and officials like judges, executive, administrators, on and on, were chosen based on factors pretty much completely unrelated to their ability to serve the public's interest and were mainly focused on social standing, tradition, and age. He focuses on gerontocracy as one trait. Just because you're old is good enough to be a leader. Right. So the United States is suffering from this issue is what I'm going to call it right now. Biden was a teenager in the 1950s. And so was Mitch McConnell. We also have Dianne Feinstein, who is essentially incapable of carrying out her duties because of her age. I mean, come on. She was 12 years old when we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. 12 years old when we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. What were you doing when you were 12? When I was 12, the Berlin Wall fell. The entire history of post-World War II occupation of the split of the East and West Germany and the Soviet Union occupation of East Berlin, the construction of the wall, the start of the Cold War, had not even happened by the time Dianne Feinstein was 12. And she's still in the U.S. Senate. I'm sorry, this is just crazy to be led by people who are so far removed from our lived experiences today. I think this is an issue for why we are unable to find some common narratives that define who we are and what we want to become. When we are being led by people who were in their formative years during the dropping of the atomic bomb at the end of World War II, I mean, I am 45. Diane, when Dianne Feinstein was 45, it was 1978. <laughs> Think about that. It's essential to recognize that this observation is not meant to be ageist, but rather to highlight the importance of having political leadership that can effectively address the contingent particular circumstances of our time. 
aligning with Dewey's points in this book and his general theory, relying on traditional way of doing things simply because they have always been done that way can be a problem when attempting to reconcile competing claims in this country. A more diverse and adaptable leadership that better represents the current generation's experiences and concerns would better serve the public's interest and foster a more cohesive society. Just think about climate change. When people are in, what do they call it, the the end of their lives? <laughs> I forget that phrase. I might edit it in here. But uh, twilight of their lives, when, when people are at the end of their journey, on, of their time here on Earth, they're not looking, they're not too concerned. They're not emotionally connected to what's going to be happening 60 years from now. My six-year-old son and my connection to my six-year-old son, I'm very much interested in what's going to be happening 60 years from now. So the people, the power brokers in D.C., the big, the people really calling the shots were teenagers at the end of World War II. How can we expect them to conceptualize the fears and anxiety, the needs and wants that we have today here in the normal world, far removed from the halls of Washington, D.C.? This disconnect is dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. It's critical that we find a way to get people that are more in tune with the pulse of our society that are in the halls of power, not just in the halls, but are actually given the power to make those big changes and those big decisions. Because the, the people my age, a little younger, in their late 30s who are up there, they're not in positions of real power, right? They're there, but they're not able to make the big changes. We need to fix that. So Dewey would argue there should be no defined age limit. And I actually agree with that. There should not be a defined age limit because you never know what we may need at a particular time. However, this gets to my argument. Do we think the current set of leaders in our country are the right ones for this time? I know certain people do. This is the argument I heard made about the importance of Biden's age and his deep knowledge and inner workings of D.C. and the respect he commands within the bureaucratic apparatus of our government. And this stability was greatly needed after the instability of the Trump years. I see this argument. I understand it. I acknowledge that is, in fact, argued from a logical standpoint. It may even have been the best option for 2020. Is it the best option for us now in 2023 as we go into 2024, the next election? I think we should be having this debate. But it appears to me that the space for this debate is not even being given. There is no space for this debate. It's already been decided for us. Biden is the nominee, is the is the only choice for 2024, right? And Dewey would argue that is a failure to live up to the needs and demands of a just democratic state. I say, how dare you? I also say, how dare we just accept this? Moving on in chapter three, Dewey explores the complexities of democracy, the allure of power, and the challenge of aligning individual actions with social ends. This is what we've been talking about the whole time. This is what this entire book is about. How do we align individual action with social ends and the allure of power and needs and desires and wants and the power that is inherent in the people who govern us through the democratic method that we use? But he's critical of socialism in this part of the book. And I believe people listening to this, and I'm I'm pretty sure because I've heard people tell me this, they're like, oh, Dewey, oh, he's a socialist. No. He's not a socialist. Let's see what he has to say about this. So quoting Dewey, one often hears it's said by socialists, justly impatient with the present economic regime that industry should be taken out of private hands. One recognizes what they intend, that it should cease to be regulated by desire for profit and should function for the benefit of producers and consumers instead of being sidetracked to the advantage of financiers and stockholders. But one wonders, 
whether those who so readily utter this saying have asked themselves, into whose hands industry is to pass? Into those of the public? But, alas, the public has no hands except those of individual human beings. The essential problem is that of transforming the action of such hands so that it will be animated by regard for social ends. I mean, that's, that's the virtues, the ends, the telos. And Dewey, I just, he's so underappreciated. I really think we need him, his voice for our time right now. All right. So, so in this passage, Dewey's critiques the simplistic notion of taking industry out of the private hands. It is often championed by socialists. He agrees with the intent behind the statement, which is to shift the control of industry away from private profit-driven individuals and toward the benefit of producers and consumers. However, he challenges the notion of passing control to the public. Dewey asserts that the real challenge lies in transforming individual actions so they are guided by social ends rather than personal gain. This is also like how we don't frame the world as zero sum. Your gain is my gain as well. If you are able to thrive, I'm also able to thrive. This is Dewey's conceptualization of how society works, how we are all interwoven together. So this is not an easy task, though. In fact, I think it's, I don't know if it's impossible. I just feel like we've been working on this for over 2,500 years. How do we get everyone to work with the interest of all of us in mind as we work in our individual worlds, our life worlds, and the actions we take? This is not an easy task, and it cannot be magically solved by simply shifting control from one group to another. Instead, it requires a careful examination of the underlying issues that lead individuals to use concentrated power to personal ends, whether in politics or economics. Right. So in essence, Dewey's critique of socialism here does not necessarily dismiss its ideals, but highlights its oversimplification of the problem at hand. And I agree with this 100%. I, am not, I don't call myself a socialist. I, I'm not a Marxist. I read Marx's work and I read all of these books that are based off Marxism and the analysis of Marxism. I, it's just it's missing something. It's missing a morality and an ethics. There's too much of a reduction there. And the idea that the telos is the eventual rising up of the proletariat and taking over the bourgeoisie, like that's the ultimate end of society. Everything is arcing towards that. I just, I don't, it's not happening. That's, that's, that's just, it's incoherent. Marx said a lot of great things, and he made a lot of great insights. That's why his ideas are durable. But as a whole philosophy, as a whole mode, method, it's a failure, right? And plus, he wrote this how long ago? Come on, it's almost 200 years ago, maybe 170, 160. We're, we've moved on. We're in a different world now. Getting back to the core of this podcast, we need to find a moral narrative for our time. So where I think Dewey missed an opportunity here, is he, but he does mention it later in another chapter. But at this point, I believe he should have said something. This, what I'm about to say. I'm personally in favor of worker-owned structures such as cooperatives, where employees have a direct stake in the organization's success. These structures encourage a sense of ownership and responsibility among workers, fostering an environment of cooperation, mutual respect, and shared decision-making. This, this model aligns with Dewey's idea of transforming individual actions towards social ends, as it empowers individuals to take an active role in shaping their work environment and the broader industry they are part of. Additionally, it allows for wealth to be more equitably distributed among those who contribute directly to the creation of that wealth, countering the trend of profits being concentrated in the hands of a few. In, a mo in our modern world, with increasing discussions around income inequality and economic justice, exploring such alternative models should be at the top of our agenda and on the front pages of our newspapers and our, 
They should be talked about all the time. Should be on the front page of the New York Times all the time. Worker cooperatives. There's worker cooperatives being formed all the time in this country. It's still on the margins, but there's a growing movement. I was part of it briefly when I worked at the city of Tucson. I was able to connect the city of Tucson with a nonprofit out of Oakland called Project Equity that provides the capital and also the training to transform small businesses into employee ownership. And their model is to try to capture all those mom and pops that are owned by baby boomers who are now retiring. And instead of having those businesses be sucked up by the private equity vultures that are out there waiting, is to step in and to provide essentially the financing and the capital to do that transformation from private to this cooperative. Because most banks won't touch it. And, and that's another way of how public money, which is through the public banking system, which is commercialized. But anyways, I'm getting on a tangent here. But there is a small growing movement around worker cooperatives. And those are the things that would and will make a transformative change in people's lives when it comes to equity and the distribution of incomes equitably. Just needs more. We need to be more talking about it. We don't ever see them on the front pages or anything. In order, I learned about it by subscribing to these newsletters that are it, you really have to work in order to learn about it. If you're not already in a worker cooperative and you know about it, the power of media. I'm sure we're going to get to the media thing at some point. I wrote in my notes that I should riff on 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 this, and I didn't even see I wrote on it, and I was riffing on it already. See, I'm starting to get into the flow of this podcast. All right, we're going to move on to the next part. This brings us to an interesting aspect of Dewey's thought. Democracy is a mode of governance. It's interesting to note that Dewey does not romanticize democracy as the most inspiring construct. Rather, he views it as a specific practice in selecting officials and regulating their conduct. This understanding, while perhaps less idealistic, is grounded in reality and crucially relevant to the functioning of a political democracy. If we look for a nuance in Dewey's argument, we see that democracy has evolved as a way to counteract the forces that have determined rule by accidental and relevant factors. It also serves as a mechanism to counteract the tendency to employ political power to serve private instead of public ends. Here's where the essence of Dewey's argument lies. To talk about democratic government without considering its historical background is to miss the point entirely. It's akin to taking a shot in the dark. By adopting a distinctly historical perspective, we avoid the pitfall of conflating issues that need to be kept separate. It's not that Dewey dismisses the importance of democracy as an ethical and social ideal. Rather, he urges us to view it in light of its historical context to get a clearer understanding. Marxists listening to this may be like, is this Marxist historical materialism here? Are we getting into some historical materialism? They're similar, actually, but they, it diverges on the key point, which I mentioned before. In Marx's historical materialism, it all has a telos, a theology going to the eventual overthrow of the bourgeoisie. And, and that is not part of Dewey's vision here. He's not looking at it at the historical context of where we got to in that mode. So that's something that we keep in mind. So let's try to and use a gardening metaphor here. I'm really in the metaphors and I've been working on, I've already, I'm working on episode five right now. So I've already completed episode four and I'm going to be using some more metaphors. So get ready, buckle up. This is a gardening metaphor. In our garden, the democratic government is not just any plant. It's a perennial that has grown and changed with each passing season. To truly understand and nurture it, we can't simply look at the plant in its current state. We must consider its growth over time how its roots have spread, how it reacted to past seasons of droughts or abundance. It's not enough to know the plant needs sunlight and water. We must understand its unique history within our garden. Taking a shot in the dark 
like planting seeds without understanding the soil or the plant's needs, is likely to end in failure. In the same way, discussing democracy without acknowledging its historical background risks misunderstanding the plant we're trying to nurture. Moreover, we must be careful not to mix up our plants. Just as tomatoes and roses require different care, the ethical and social ideals of democracy, while important, are distinct from the practice of political democracy. We risk damaging our plants if we treat them all the same. Dewey does not suggest we ignore the beauty or fragrance of our plant, the ethical and social ideals of democracy. Instead, he reminds us that understanding the plant's unique history and needs, its mode of governance, is vital to its successful growth and flowering. In other words, to truly appreciate and nurture our democratic garden, we must understand the historical context in which it has grown. The democratic movement, as Dewey points out, is not a singular linear process that unfolds to a predestined end, which is what Marxism thinks will happen. It's a complex affair, a chain of movements impacting forms of, of government globally over the last century and a half. Therefore, praising or damning democratic government in absolute terms oversimplifies its intricate dynamic nature. We can see that the idea that each contingent particular community requires and deserves special attention to the mode of government, but this takes work and also some acceptance of unknowns since new and untested methods will be adopted. This has a tendency to scare many and, and is why, in my opinion, we have such a hard time making progress on the societal ills that afflict late modernity. In my schema of agency, creativity, and courage, this would fall under the lack of courage to embrace creativity and acknowledge our agency to affect our material conditions and represents the cowardice that is the hallmark of the modern governance architecture. There are no absolutes, as Dewey says in the very next section of this chapter. There are no absolutes. Dewey now explains the birth of the individual, the historical evolution of the concept of, of individual freedom, tracing its roots to revolts against established government and institutional life, this revolt was both political and intellectual, necessitating a justification for its existence and action. Dewey argues that this justification was found in the concept of individualism, a theory that endowed individuals in isolation from any association with inherent or natural rights. This was a practical move to limit the powers of government, with figures like John Locke advocating that the sole purpose of government was to protect these individual rights. So let's quote Dewey here. It's page 86 of my copy of The Public and Its Problems. Quote, since established political forms were tied up with other institutions, especially ecclesiastical, and with a solid body of tradition and inherited belief, the revolt also extended to the latter. Thus, it happened that, that the intellectual terms in which the movement expressed itself had a negative import, even when they seemed to be positive. Freedom presented itself as an end in itself, though it signified, in fact, liberation from oppression and tradition. Since it was necessary upon the intellectual side to find justification for the movement of revolt, and since established authority was upon the side of institutional life, the natural recourse was appeal to some inalienable sacred authority resident in the protesting individuals. This individualism was born a theory which endowed singular persons in isolation from any associations, except those which they deliberately formed for their own ends, with native or natural rights. The revolt against old and limiting associations was converted, intellectually, into the doctrine of independence of any and all associations. Man, this is like, 
libertarians are probably cheering right now. This is like literally the libertarian credo right here. Dewey highlights an important aspect of this development. The concept of freedom was largely negative, defined by what it was against, oppression and a tradition, rather than what it was for. This led to an intellectual conversion of the revolt against limiting associations into the doctrine of independence from all associations. This individualism is deeply embedded in the modern conception of democracy and freedom, with roots in political theory, philosophy, and psychology. However, Dewey critiques this isolationist perspective, suggesting that, that it oversimplifies the complex relationships between individuals and societal institutions. Building on Dewey's discussion, other thinkers like Lousseau, Hume, Locke, each contributed to our understanding of individualism and freedom. Rousseau, for example, proposed a social contract theory, suggesting that individuals willingly surrendered some of their freedoms to the state in exchange for protection of their remaining rights. Now, Hume emphasized the importance of convention or agreed upon social practices in maintaining social order and cooperation among individuals. His skepticism of absolute notions of morality and his emphasis on sentiment and utility have greatly influenced modern ethical and political thought. Now, John Locke, as Dewey notes, was a crucial figure in the development of individualism. Okay, his theory of property rights and his belief in the tabla rasa, or blank slate, of the human mind at birth provide key foundations for liberal individualism. These thinkers, along with Dewey, help us understand the historical development and complexity of the concept of individual freedom. They collectively suggest that while individualism has played a crucial role in shaping our modern democracies, we must also acknowledge the importance of social institutions and associations in shaping individual identities and freedoms. The challenge is to find a balance between protecting individual rights and promoting social, and this is the most important word, responsibility. Promoting social responsibility. Now, Charles Taylor and McIntyre and Aristotle, those three philosophers I've mentioned multiple times thus far, have all addressed the role of virtues, ethics, and moral narratives in our understanding of the individual and society. Let's look at how this weaves into the current, what I will call, confused conception of the individual that arose around the foundations of liberalism. Now, Charles Taylor's works focuses heavily on the concept of moral sources, or the narratives and traditions that shape our moral understanding and sense of identity. He critiques the modern emphasis on individual autonomy and instrumental reason, arguing instead for a richer conception of human life that acknowledges our embeddedness within communal narratives and traditions. For Taylor, virtues are not simply individual moral qualities, but are deeply connected to our shared understandings of the good life. He might argue that our modern conception of the individual, as Dewey describes it, fails to recognize these important moral sources. I happen to agree. Now, Alasdair McIntyre, he too criticizes the modern individual or modern individualism, particularly its tendency to view morality in terms of individual rights and utility. Instead, he proposes a return to a virtue ethics approach in which moral life is understood in terms of the virtues that contribute to the achievement of the common good this approach, rooted in Aristotle's ethics, emphasizes the importance of community and tradition in shaping moral character. McIntyre might argue that the isolated, rights-focused individual of modern theory lacks the communal context necessary for the cultivation of virtues and the pursuit of a shared good life. He said this, that's why our morals and ethics are incoherent, because we don't have the correct context. 
Aristotle posited that virtues were habits that individuals cultivated through practice aimed at achieving eudaimonia or flourishing. This flourishing, however, was not purely individualistic, but was tied to one's role and function in society and the polis, or political community. Aristotle would likely argue that the modern conception of the individual, detached from communal role and responsibilities, neglect this essential context for moral development. One could, and I say must, argue that our current understanding of the individual, as described by Dewey, needs to be re-examined in light of these insights about virtues and morals and moral narratives. This might mean acknowledging the importance of communal context and traditions in shaping individual identities, recognizing that virtues are not just individual qualities but are tied to our shared conception of the good and embracing a richer, more communal understanding of moral life. This could potentially lead to a more balanced approach to individual rights and social responsibility, one that values both individual freedoms and communal goods. But what does this look like? Here are some ideas of how we can today in 2023 put what we just talked about into practice. So first, education reform. One of the key areas where this practice can be implemented is in, in the educational system. Schools could incorporate courses on communal virtues and ethics alongside traditional subjects. Students should be encouraged to participate in community service or social projects, thereby understanding the practical implications of communal living and shared responsibility. They would not only learn about the importance of virtues and moral narratives, but also experience them firsthand, thereby reinforcing Dewey's vision of education as a transformative societal tool. This is where the right in this country is working very intentionally, and they are doing this with a very particular vision of virtues and ethics transplanted from an ancient conception of the self and community that's completely incoherent to our modern frame. The left needs to get into this game ASAP. Seriously, we are dropping the ball on this one. There's corporate social responsibility. Companies could be encouraged or even legally required to consider the impact of the actions on the community and the environment, right? We just let them exploit this world and us. And it, yeah, okay. This would not only help to balance the profit-making with ethical considerations, but also foster a sense of communal responsibility among employees and stakeholders. So there's things like B Corporation certification, fair trade certification. You know, for example, for me, I really see a focus on employee ownership as a key here. I also see much stricter regulation in our global financial system, specifically around derivatives, derivative instruments, and really cracking down on, on what's happening there because the derivative, the derivative markets are key for how Things are affected right here, right now. When you go and buy something at the local store, when you get something at a restaurant, when you order something on Amazon or wherever you order it from, this is all being mediated by the global derivatives market. This is something that's not really well understood, and it's something that the left really should focus on. You, you clamp down on the global derivatives market, what happens in our world right here, our day-to-day -day life will dramatically change. I guarantee it. Maybe I should do an episode on that, and maybe I should bring in an expert to talk about that. So next, civic engagement platforms. Government and non-governmental organizations could create platforms to promote civic engagement. These platforms could provide opportunities for individuals to participate in decision-making processes, contribute to community projects, or engage in public debates on important issues. This would not only foster a sense of communal responsibility, but also 
help individuals understand the impact of their actions on the wider community. Such civic engagement could be facilitated through digital platforms, making it easier for people to participate and contribute to their community in meaningful ways. You know, some examples here would be the participatory budgeting, where community members directly decide how to spend a part of the public budget. I studied this in my grad program. This has had mixed results thus far, but it's on the right. It's on the right track. I say, keep doing it work on it. And I received a certificate in collaborative governance from the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona when I received my master's in public administration and public policy. Collaborative governance is an institutional arrangement that brings together stakeholders from different sectors like the government, business, and civil society to collectively make decisions and manage resources. This is a way for the public to have a voice, to have a seat at the table that normally is just public and private, not the community. So this is why I'm a big fan of collaborative governance and the theory that's behind that. That field is roughly 25 years old. The literature that's for it, so it's still young. If you're young and listening to this, go out there and look up collaborative governance. I think having more people understand the power and the potentiality of implementing that framework towards our current form of governance could have transformative effects over time. A big part of my training in that program was to figure out how you design Public, en- public engagement meetings to ensure that people can be there, the ones who are normally not at the table. There's a lot of amazing work being done there to do that. So next, we're moving on. Dewey moves on to examining the concepts of utilitarianism and the invisible hand of the market. Oh, boy. Dewey's critique of the laissez-faire economic theory w- with its reliance on the invisible hand and utilitarian principles is deeply tied to, the, to his concern that the overly individualistic conception of society... The utilitarian economic theory argues that each person naturally seeks their own betterment and is the best judge of their own interest. Oh, really? The market, left to its own devices, is believed to harmoniously bring about both personal profit and societal benefit. This is the invisible hand metaphor Adam Smith used to describe the self-regulating nature of the marketplace. Sounds a lot like religion to me. So, however, Dewey argues this viewpoint is overly simplistic and naive, and I agree. It assumes that individuals operate in isolation, independently of any societal or cultural influences, and it relies on the dubious premise that what is good for each individual will necessarily result in what is good for society as a whole. In reality, our desired choices and senses of what is beneficial are shaped by a complex interplay of social, cultural, and political factors. Furthermore, the idea that individual self-interest automatically leads to societal benefit is not borne out by the facts as evidenced by economic inequalities, exploitation, and environmental degradation going off the charts in the last 40 years since we have adopted this sort of policy wholesale. 1980s, check out those charts. Just extrapolated 1980s to today. It's just, how dare we? Moreover, Dewey critiques the utilitarian economic theory for its reductionist view of government's role, which, according to this theory is merely to secure justice in terms of protecting property and enforcing contracts. This view of government sees it as an external force that interferes with natural economic laws. Natural economic laws. (laughs) And hence should be minimized, right? Dewey proposes a broader view of government, one that recognizes its potential as an agent of communal action and public good. He argues that the state should not just be a protector of private interests, but a facilitator of social cooperation, public services, and shared values. This conception of government requires a richer understanding of individual rights and responsibilities. There's that word again. It's a kryptonite for certain people out there. 
responsibilities. Right? So this conception of government requires a richer understanding of individual rights and responsibilities, one that transcends the narrow confines of utilitarianism and takes into account the communal and relational aspect of human life. It takes into account the reality that we live in. My God, that's not going to be taught in an economics course. I guarantee you. You can get a PhD and not learn any of this stuff in economics. So let's look at another metaphor. I'm in the metaphor mood. I told you that I've already, I'm working on two episodes ahead of where we are right now. And there's a lot more metaphors coming ahead. So I hope you like them. Let's imagine an orchestra, each musician, a master of their own instrument, poised to perform a complex symphony. The conductor, a figure of authority and guidance, steps off the stage, leaving the musicians to their own devices. This act represents the government stepping back, allowing the invisible hand of individual self-interest and pursuit of personal excellence to guide the orchestra's performance. Each musician, much like individuals in a utilitarian society, begin to play their part with fervor, focusing on their own instrument and how well they can perform their piece. The violinist seeks to do outdo the cellist. The trumpeter tries to drown out the horns, all in a bid to showcase their individual skill and virtuosity. The music swells, but without the guiding baton of the conductor, the symphony becomes less harmonious, more chaotic. The musicians, so caught up in their individual performances, lose sight of the collective symphony they are meant to create. However, Imagine if the conductor returns to the stage not to dictate each musician's performance, no, but to guide and harmonize their individual efforts. The conductor, representing the role of government, doesn't stifle the musician's individual excellence, but channels it toward a shared goal, a beautifully executed symphony. The orchestra, now playing in harmony, showcases not only individual brilliance, but also the beauty of a collective performance. This illustrates the potential limitations of a purely utilitarian approach and the importance of balancing individual pursuit with shared values and cooperation. It is not about suppressing individual freedoms, but about harmonizing them towards a collective good, a symphony that is greater than the sum of its parts. Continuing with our orchestra, consider the sheet music they're playing from. It's not merely a set of notes to be played. It represents a shared narrative that tells a story through the music. The narrative doesn't suppress individual musicians' virtuosity, but guides it, giving it context and meaning. This is akin to the moral narratives that guide individuals in a society, providing a shared understanding of what's valuable and meaningful. The virtues, then, are like the fundamental skills and principles each musician brings to their performance. Not just technical proficiency, but also a deep understanding of rhythm, harmony, and melody, and a commitment to collaboration and mutual respect. Responsibility. They're not imposed from outside, but are developed and internalized by each musician. In a similar way, virtues aren't just rules imposed by society. They're qualities that individuals develop and internalize, like empathy, honesty, and courage. They guide our action and interactions, helping us contribute positively to our community. When each musician, guided by their virtues and the shared narratives of the sheet music, contribute to the symphony, the result is a beautiful harmony. They're not just playing notes, they're telling a story together, creating something that's more than the sum of its parts. This is the potential of a society that values both individual freedom and shared virtues, guided by a shared moral narrative. The conductor, the government in this metaphor, doesn't dictate every move, but helps harmonize these elements, guiding the individual musician 
toward the collective good, creating a symphony that echoes the richness and diversity of the orchestra and leaves a lasting impact on the audience. For musicians, developing their skill involves both individual practice and communal learning. They spend countless hours honing their craft, learning to read music, mastering their instrument, and cultivating their understanding of rhythm, harmony, and melody. This individual dedication and discipline can be likened to how virtues are developed within individuals in a society through personal reflection, experience, and learning. Yet, musicians don't learn in isolation. They are influenced by other musicians. They take lessons, they perform in ensembles, and they listen to and learn from the music of others. They are part of a community that shapes their understanding of music and informs their development as musicians. Similarly, virtues aren't developed in a vacuum. They are shaped by our interactions with others, our social norms, our cultural traditions, and our shared experiences. Musicians are also guided by a deep sense of commitment to their craft and to their fellow musicians. They understand that their individual performance affects the whole ensemble and that they have a responsibility to contribute positively to the collective sound. This is akin to the social commitment we each have in our communities, where our individual actions have impacts on the well-being of others and the health of our community as a whole. Now, let's consider how this practice could be applicable to everyday people in our society. Just as musicians cultivate their skills and commitment to, an, to the ensemble, individuals in a society can cultivate virtues and commitment to their community. This could involve personal reflection and growth, learning from others, which I've mentioned before, and also act actively participating in community activities. For instance, people might engage in dialogue and debate to better understand diverse perspectives, or they might volunteer their time and talents to contribute to community projects. They might also strive to develop virtues like empathy, honesty, and my favorite, courage, recognizing their importance in maintaining healthy relationships and healthy community. Just as the conductor guides the musician towards creating a harmonious symphony, societal structures and institutions can guide individuals toward contributing positively to society. They can provide platform for civic engagement, encourage social responsibility, and uphold principles of justice and fairness. They don't dictate every action, but they help harmonize individual freedoms with social responsibilities, creating a society that is richer and more diverse for its balance between the two. In this way, the practice of being a musician in an orchestra becomes a metaphor for being an individual in society. All right, I've decided to skip some topics as I have been producing these podcasts. I'm becoming increasingly aware of the tension between thoroughness and also practicality of information that can be shared through this format. In this segment, we're exploring how our relationships and social structures have evolved with the rise of technology and mechanization. We're coming to the end of this episode. It's about the shift from close-knit, face-to-face associations within our local communities to vast networks of impersonal interactions that technology has enabled. This has been a common theme for us in the book. There's a powerful quote that encapsulates this transformation. Dewey wrote, The great society created by steam and electricity may be a society, but it is no community. What does he mean by this? The great society represents our modern interconnected world where networks span across geographical boundaries, uniting millions of individuals. Yet, despite this unprecedented level of interconnectedness, these networks lack the intimacy mutual understanding, and shared values that define a true community. This shift has profound implications. On one side, it has liberated individuals, removing the constraints of local communities and opening up the world of opportunities on a much larger scale. 
It's fostered innovation, creativity, and productivity by enabling new forms of collaboration and competition. But on the other side, society has become more impersonal and mechanized, and this has been undermining the traditional forms of community, leaving many feeling isolated and disconnected. Dewey captures this when he writes, quote, The invasion of the community by the new and relatively impersonal and mechanical modes of combined human behavior is the outstanding fact of modern life. This statement underscores the sweeping influence of technology and mechanization on our lives, reshaping our relationships, our communities, and even our identities. However, in the face of these challenges, the virtues and moral narratives we discussed earlier can serve as our compass. They can help us foster a sense of shared purpose and collective responsibility. Even within the vast and personal networks, they can guide us to cultivate empathy and understanding to see beyond our own interests and to recognize our interconnectedness with others. As we navigate this complex landscape, we need to reimagine our conception of community. How can we foster a sense of belonging and shared purpose within this vast network? How can we ensure that technology enhances our humanity rather than diminishes it? How can we use technology not just as a tool for maximizing efficiency and productivity, but also as a means for fostering deeper connections, facilitating mutual understanding, and nurturing our shared humanity? We have gotten to the end of Episode 3 of Reviving Virtue. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to continuing this important conversation with you in our next episode, and it's Episode number 4 for of Reviving Virtue, out next Tuesday. Until then, let's each do our part to nurture our societal garden, fostering the growth of shared symbols, meaning, virtues, and moral narratives that resonate with our time and aspiration. All transcripts will be available on Patreon for our $3 a month Moral Explorer tier. And if you upgrade to the $5 a month Ethical Pioneer tier, you can listen to the podcast early and receive a private RSS feed, which you can subscribe to through your podcast app. No need to listen through Patreon. I usually finish each episode Thursday or Friday, so it gives you four to five days early access. There is one more tier, it's the $15 a month tier, and that's how you become a virtue champion. And, and at this tier, you will receive a custom-made coffee mug with the topics and themes we are exploring and reviving virtue. This first coffee mug is focused on the John Dewey series. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Be well.